We live, we love, we serve. We live, we love, we serve. Those For those who don't know our core values, many times people ask, what is this church about? And if you wanted to explain FCBC to anybody, that identity statement says it all. And our core values are live, love, serve. Funny enough, when this uh, fell off, underneath was an old moniker that said creation is waiting. That is what our belief is, that the scripture in Romans says creation is waiting for the revealing of the sons and daughters of God. We believe that all of creation is waiting for us to come to an awareness of our divine identity rooted in God through the teachings of Jesus Christ. And so, whether you know it or not, creation is standing on tiptoe waiting for you to come to an awareness of who you are in alignment with the divine calling upon your life. Amen? Just think about that. Just think about that for a second. Creation is waiting, all of creation. The next time you walk down the street and you see the trees begin to sway, just tell yourself, creation is waiting. When, when, when the wind begins to blow, creation is waiting for you as an individual to come to an awareness of who you are, son, daughter, child of the Most High God rooted in the teachings of the carpenter. And if anybody asks you, what your title is. You simply tell them, I am a disciple. Oh, God. All right, all right. Got excited for a second. Listen, I want to read today from the Gospel of Mark, uh, the second chapter, verses. I really want, I'm going to teach today. I, wanna, I, always, I always say I'm going to be easy, but you know, spirit just be moving. <laughs> Mark 2, I want to go verses 13 through 15. I'm going to read in um, the New Revised Standard Version and then in the Message Bible. Mark 2, 13 through 15. And NRSV reads like this. Jesus went out again beside the sea. The whole crowd gathered around him and he taught them. As he was walking along, he saw Levi son of Alphaeus sitting at the tax booth and he said to him follow me and he got up and followed him and as he sat at dinner in Levi's house many tax collectors and sinners were also sitting with Jesus and his disciples for there were many who followed him when the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors they said to his disciples why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners when jesus heard this he said to them those who are well have no need of a physician but those who are sick i have come to call not the righteous but but sinners then in the message bible it reads a little different it says mark 2 again 13 through 15 17 rather uh, then jesus went again to walk alongside the lake again a crowd came to him and he taught them strolling along he saw Levi son of Alphaeus at his work collection ta collecting taxes Jesus said come along with me he came later Jesus and his disciples were at home having supper and with a collection of disreputable guests unlikely as it seems more than a few of them had become followers the religion scholars and Pharisees saw him keeping this kind of company and lit into his disciples. What kind of example is this? Acting cozy with the riffraff. 
Jesus overhearing shot back, who needs a doctor, the healthy or the sick? I'm here inviting the sin sick, not the spiritually fit. Amen. Come on, let's, let's pray. God, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. With every breath we take, we inhale life. God, thank you for the air we breathe, for the lives we have, for the lives we live. God, we're so grateful that perfection is not a requirement to get to know you. But God, you see us in our need. You see us in our struggle. You see us when we are wrestling with ourselves. And in the midst of that wrestling, you tap us on the shoulder and remind us that we belong to you. God, thank you. For in those times, we wanted to disconnect and be isolated and become lonely. You refused to let us hide. You broke into our hiding places and reminded us that we were born worthy and we were more than enough. That we are your children. So God, remind us. That not only do we have more for us than against us, but remind us that we have more in common than divides us. We love you, Lord. We honor you, God. And it's in your name we pray. We say, amen. 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 Remain standing again. Let me read, let me read the... Um, the NRSV version. Mark 2, 13 through 17. Jesus went out again beside the sea. The whole crowd gathered around him. And he taught them. As he was walking, walking along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. And he said to him, follow me. And he got up and followed him. And as he sat at dinner, in Levi's house, many tax collectors and sinners were also sitting with Jesus and his disciples, for there were many who followed him. When the scribes of the Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? When Jesus heard this, he said to them, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, I have come to call not the righteous, but but the sinners. I want to just read a portion of that message Bible. When it says the religion scholars and Pharisees saw him keeping this kind of company and lit into his disciples. What kind of example is this? Acting cozy with the riffraff. Jesus overhearing shot back. Who needs a doctor? The healthy or the sick? I'm here inviting the sin sick, not the spiritually fit. Do me a favor, turn to your neighbor and tell them simply, neighbor, neighbor. I'm, in the I'm in the number. 
Come on, turn to the other neighbor and tell them, neighbor, I'm in the number. Come on, I'm in the Put your hands together. Give the Lord a hand clap of praise. I'm in the number. I'm going to move as quickly as I can this morning. Um, man. Yeah. I'm convinced in this particular historical moment where Christianity is getting in many ways and in some cases a deservedly bad rap that there are many people who are confused about well not really Christianity but I'm convinced confused about what it means to follow to be a disciple I'm amazed at people who lay claims to being part of this community but it seems that instead of being aligned and having allegiance with the teachings of Jesus, some of their allegiance is more culturally based and politically based under the banner of Christianity. That we who live this life and have been called to this life are called first and foremost, as I believe, and I don't think it's just me, I think it's the Jesus movement in general, we are called to be disciples. For some people, it's amazing how revolutionary and radical that sounds. It is not juxtaposed or contradictory to Christianity. It is just seeking to be in alignment with the teachings of Jesus. One of our members, Sister Toma, sent me a clip yesterday of Joanne Reed and she talked about that some people who claim to be Christians and may be conservative, right-wing, evangelical Christians, that they may be Christians, but they are not red-letter Christians. So for those of you who may not understand what red-letter Christians are, there was a time, and still is a time, in some of our Bibles, where everything that Jesus said in the Gospels was written in red. Now, what happens is, is that when you start looking at the red letters and the red sentences in those old Bibles, and some still exist, and you try to measure them with some of the talk, the language, and the behavior of Christians, it will make you wonder, what portion of the scriptures are you using to justify your actions? Because red letter Christians honor their life and shape their life by the words of the carpenter. No surrogates, no other portion. I tell people that if you are a follower of red letter Christianity, well, I like that. I don't really use that, but it sounds good just now. Of red letter Christianity. It's amazing that you, if you follow that, then the scriptures, Alicia, that galvanize your life ought to be connected to the things that Jesus said and Jesus taught. Never get to the point in your Christianity where you simply use the name of Jesus, but do not follow the teachings of Jesus. Do not simply use the name of Jesus and not follow the way of Jesus. Now, if you're going to follow the way of Jesus, be clear about what you're doing. You are not simply capitulating or bowing down to some certain code or ethic connected to ritual and ceremony.
For there are those who think again that our faith is simply reduced down to certain rituals and certain ceremonies. That if you're aligning yourself with this movement, you are putting yourself in a place to be attacked by those who don't understand the nature of Jesus's teachings, movement, and mission. In fact, don't ever think that somehow coming under attack, not just for being a Christian now, but coming under attack for following the teachings of Jesus is something strange. It's bound to happen in a place and culture and systems that are moved by hate and bitterness and enmity and animosity. When you stand and talk about love being the underlying ethos, those who rather be bitter than better will will chastise you because of your allegiance to the love ethic of Jesus. In fact, if you're going to align yourself with the teachings of the Palestinian carpenter, then you must understand that there will also be those who will question the nature of the things that motivate you, especially when those motivations are not connected to power, conquest, domination, or oppression. They will be wondering why you do what you do led by love because you take Jesus seriously. You see, this is not new from the time that Jesus comes upon the scene. He is being challenged. He's being criticized from those who feel like they have a responsibility to hold up the banner of purity and righteousness. They go by certain names in the Gospels when you read. They're called scribes and Pharisees. Scribes, in case you don't know, and I'm going to make this assumption some don't really know, scribes were religious scholars who were trained to interpret the Jewish law. The Jewish law could be primarily summed up in the first five books of the Bible, known as the Torah, which was primarily called the books of Moses or the law, because in those first five books, we get the establishment of the Jewish community and the teachings that shaped the Jewish community. Scribes were trained in the law and interpreting the law for the people. Then there's another group known as Pharisees. Pharisees, in case you don't know, were religious leaders, but they were not priests. They were leading a reform movement in Judaism during Jesus's time to try to get the people back in alignment with the essential teachings of the law. Again, those first five books, that Torah, they believed, the Pharisees, that the law was designed to carve out a space in the midst of Roman occupation and corruption, a space of righteousness and holiness. They really were about a bifurcation of everything. They believed in binary, so to speak. This is the Pharisees. So what does that mean? They believed in clean and unclean. They believed in sin and righteousness. They believed in sacred and the profane slash the secular. And they believed that their responsibility was to carve out a space of what they thought was purity and righteousness among the Jewish people disconnected from the teachings of the priesthood. I hope you get this. They believed that somehow of the responsibility of all those who were following the ways of Judaism 
to honor the priesthood of all believers. But the problem is the scribes trained in the law, the Pharisees who are creating a new movement connected to righteousness right, and purity had a problem with Jesus. They had a big problem with Jesus, primarily because they were not clear about what time it was. Okay, let me go a little deeper. What they could not understand is what was the igniting factor behind Jesus' teachings. The igniting factor behind Jesus' teachings was this reality. He had believed and his cousin John had announced that God was up to something new. And what was the new thing God was up to? I'm glad you asked. It was called the kingdom of God. So that his cousin John, the baptizer, said that the kingdom of God is on the way. When Jesus shows up and begins his ministry, Jesus says the kingdom of God is here. That the kingdom had now come. And now what did Jesus do? Did Jesus simply mimic and uphold the tradition of the law that the scribes and the Pharisees were steeped in? No, he does not honor them completely. In fact, much of the teachings of Jesus have no cross reference in the Torah. And this is the problem. When you read through the Gospels and we'll be journeying this year, you'll see constantly the religious leaders, scribes, Pharisees asking Jesus things like this. By what authority do you teach these things? By what authority do you say these things they were enraged at some of his teachings because a lot of what he was teaching again had no cross reference in their torah oh i hope you get that and so it was peter gomes in his book the scandalous gospel of jesus who reminds us that 85 percent of what Jesus taught could not be found in Hebrew scriptures. This is why they kept questioning him. I'm not going to repeat that. I'm, all, no, I'm going to keep repeating that. For those who often tell people that if you can't get it in the, in the scriptures, it ain't real. Well, hold on. You would have had a problem with Jesus because 85% of what he taught could not be found in Hebrew scriptures. And so they were saying, by what authority? How do you say this? Well, Jesus had the audacity to believe it was possible to have your own relationship with God that you didn't need a priest as a mediator you did not need anyone standing as a buffer between you and God that God had the capacity to reach you and you have the capacity to reach God that you can have a relationship with God all by yourself trusting what you hear from God and what you feel from God so when he bursts on the scene well I wish I had time this morning because because this is what you gotta get do you understand how the trajectory of Jesus's life moved he went uh, past the dance from being in the crowd approaching John to be the one who the crowds then follow. Oh gosh. He steps out of the crowd and then is followed by the crowds because when he steps out, he's appointed by God to do this work. Mark's gospel has him beginning this work. And in chapter two, something profound happens is he comes back from a respite with God. If you look at Mark 135, remember that Mark 135, because it shows Jesus getting away after healing all the people who had been brought to him. I think I said this a few weeks ago. He got away. 
He got away from the people, got away from the disciples to recenter, to refocus, to regroup, to reflect and come back out anew. He goes down by the sea, walks down by the lake and he begins to clear his mind after healing so many people because my God, I get it, Jesus, because sometimes when you simply live a life honoring the needs of the people, you can get lost in the people's needs and you can forget the primary nature of your work, especially if you fall and become seduced to the uh, accolades of the people that you're helping, if you fall victim to people's praise, people's applause, people's validation, people's affirmation, you can lose yourself seeking that kind of validation and affirmation. And so you got to get away. I said this last week, get away after your greatest breakthrough, get away after your most successful moment. Don't let the success seduce you into losing a sense of who you are and falling victim to being consumed with a reckless ego, border narcissism, and losing your mind. Here it is. It says he comes back. Here it is. I'm going to move quick now. And when he comes back, he comes back home. Most people, Alicia, don't get this in Mark 2. Then when Jesus leaves, he comes back to Capernaum to his house where he lives. When he comes to where he lives, because he had set up his place in Capernaum in the Galilee. When he comes back home, the people waiting for him at home. They are pressing in on his home, pressing in inside the house. So much so, people are now coming, not just for teaching. They want to see some good tricks. I mean, the man healed all sorts of people and they come there close to get that Ruthie and it says that these four friends had a friend they lowered down to the roof right to get to Jesus we start talking about the faith of the people the faith of the friends like you need some friends who are willing to do whatever it takes to get you in the presence of God the problem is we often miss is that they tore up the roof of Jesus's house in order to get this man in they messed up his house sometimes folk don't care about your well-being when they see you as a vehicle of need you'll get that later when you get home too. They tore up his house, lowered a man through. Jesus says, your sins are forgiven. Now here's what I need you to know. In the crowd will always be your detractors. Don't think that everybody in the crowd is there to support you, applause you, affirm you, validate you. In the crowd will be some of the very people who can't stand you. That's why you can't be seduced by the crowd because you always don't have the capacity to discern who's friend and who is foe. And so the best thing to do is to not be consumed by the crowd. They lower the man. Jesus says to the man, your sins are forgiven. Here it is in the crowd, scribes and Pharisees. Who are you to forgive sins? They say that is blasphemy. Anything, anytime you try to stand, they believe in the position of God or say things that you say God told you, but we're not in the scriptures. You were committing blasphemy. They call Jesus a blasphemous that he was committing blasphemy he says what's easier to say your sins are forgiven or take up your man and walk well since you can't believe I can forgive sins let me see if you believe I can heal somebody's body and so he tells the man to get up from that place the man is healed he sees the faith of the four friends and he forgives him of his wrongdoing heals him of his affliction Oh, God, he got a double breakthrough. Forgiveness, which means what? That you are not in this condition because of something you've done. Don't let people make you think that you're going through what you're going through because something is inherently wrong with you. Sometimes, y'all know what it is, life just be life. Oh, you got it. And then, then that way, and that way, that means some things are going to happen just because some things are going to happen.
No, you weren't born with no curse. It's called life sometimes. You didn't have all these things. It's just called life. So Jesus now heals the man, forgives the man, and he leaves, and he tries to go back by the seaside to spend some time. Watch, read the text. Now in the second chapter, he's walking along the seaside. The crowd is great behind him, filled with friend and foe, detractors and supporters. And then he sees who? Levi. Now, this is interesting. I won't belabor this point for my Bible scholars in here. It is amazing how in the beginning of Jesus' ministry, when he's, he's announcing and demonstrating a shift from the old, that in this scene, as he calls who would become his fifth disciple, he begins with a man whose name is Levi. You'll get that when you get home because Levi is a name of one of the sons of Jacob, one of the sons of Israel. It is from Levi's descendants that we get the order of the priests, the Levitical priests. Oh, gosh, you're going to get this. So here it is. Jesus about to shake up the understanding of what the Torah rituals and ceremonies and rules and regulations mean. And he begins with a man whose name represents the old order of the priesthood, Levi. Oh, gosh, Levi, son of Alphaeus. Can I help you understand why they put that there? Alphaeus means change. Oh, gosh. Here is Levi, the son of change. And God is about to do something transformative through Jesus' teachings. Oh, that's just a little nugget till you take on with that. Watch this. So now he comes. He sees Levi at his desk as a tax collector. My God, you have to understand that why tax collectors are despised. They were viewed as traitors of their people. Rome used those among the Jewish people to collect taxes for Rome. And, and, and all Rome said is give us the taxes we require. We don't care what you do after that. But they were given Roman, Roman status and, and permission to manipulate their own people. So what do they do? Well, hypothetically, let's say taxes due to Rome was $75. The tax collectors monthly from the people. The tax collectors would collect $300 and would pocket the rest for themselves. That's how they got wealthy, but that's why they were hated because they were just like their people. Rome just gave them authority to deepen the oppression of their people. That's why when you read the Gospels, can't nobody stand tax collectors because they're using their position to bleed the people dry. They are leeches on the community and the culture who are simply taking and taking and taking. And Jesus sees one of these leeches on his people and he does not condemn him he does not curse him he does not meet him with hate he says you know what Levi follow me now Levi has another name that you'll get down the road it's called Matthew now that's one of the disciples there and so Levi now follows Jesus he clearly is excited about this invitation to follow because he leaves everything oh gosh he walked away from materialism from capitalism at its worst he left money on the table to follow Jesus. And if that wasn't enough, he then makes an invitation. Jesus, come to my house. Oh, God, come to my house for dinner. And Levi, in his excitement, he invites who? Other tax collectors and other, well, here's Eugene Peterson's word in the message, riffraffs who come. A whole bunch of riffraffs show up at Levi's house. And who's there with the riffraff? Jesus. Oh, gosh, I love that. Man, before you go any further, just talk about, well, no, let me switch this for a second. There was a time in our culture we would walk around with these bracelets and the WWJD. 
What would Jesus do? We all was rocking it. We know, I know y'all was rocking it. WWJD. And I never wore that stuff because I, I said, this ain't really like, what would Jesus do? That can't be where you start because the real starting point, Marlene, is not what would Jesus do. It's where would Jesus be? Oh, you get this. Because where he was determined what he did. And here, where do you find him now? You find him with who? Tax collectors and sinners. That's where he would be. Don't tell me what Jesus will do if you don't want to go where he would be. Oh, gosh. Because where he would be would be offensive to a whole lot of folk whose Christianity gives them a sense of superiority to other people and look down your nose at folk you think are sinners who are riffraff, who ain't really about much, and where would Jesus be? With some of the same folk. You would criticize, chastise, tell they going to hell, tell them that God don't love them, that they ain't worthy. That's where Jesus would be. And can I tell you something else? If I got some honest folk in here, I would be in the number of people who are riffraffs and sinners and and rejects and outcasts because I wasn't always giving God praise. I wasn't always lifting up holy hands, but I found a place among the riffraff. Oh God, is anybody here who can testify? that sometimes your place is right where you are in the places that some people will look down at you upon but here's what they forget when they see you if they look next to you they might just see Jesus in the same space and in the same place he comes now a few things I said I just want to teach today a few things uh Jesus' ministry, Pastor Trey, moves inside and outside. What do you mean? His ministry moves in the synagogue and outside the synagogue. It's not just in the synagogue, yes? He would go to the synagogue and have debates with religious leaders, but most of his time is spent outside the synagogue, speaking to those, watch this, who weren't allowed in the synagogue. Gentiles and sinners. And, and, and you see, you need to understand because if those who we label as outsiders can't come in, Jesus said, I'll come out. I'll meet you where you are. Oh God, are some of y'all hearing this today? I won't wait for you to come to the place well, well, why would Jesus meet you at the place that's going to talk about you? Why would Jesus meet you at the place that's going to chastise you? Why would Jesus meet you at the place that will ridicule you? You mean that if Jesus walked in Harlem right now, he wouldn't be waiting in line to get in the building? Maybe not for some of our places. He'd be saying, you know what? All the folk who don't feel comfortable in that sanctuary, let's make one outside. All the folk who don't feel comfortable in that church, let's build one outside. Because why? Because I didn't come for the folk who think they got it all together, who think they dot every I and cross every T. I've come for the folk that those folk think ain't worthy enough to be in their presence. So, all Jesus is doing is sitting down chilling, eating, drinking. Oh, I'm sorry, did I offend somebody with the drinking comment? My bad, because in first century Israel, they had juice in refrigerators. No. 
He had water, wine. And when they drank water, they put wine in it because the water was filled with parasites that made you sick. So the wine killed the parasites. So sometimes it's water and wine. Sometimes it was just wine. So he's sitting there drinking, eating with the rejects. Now the funny thing, Dante, is how the scribes and Pharisees know who's in there. Oh, they were among those who gathered, because I said your crowd is always filled with your friends and your foes. They didn't even know that they were in the right place, because sometimes those who are spiritually fit forget they're spiritually needy, too, at the same time. Oh, God. So now they talk to his disciples. Now, I wish I really had time, Vic, because, you know, I'm from the old school, right? If you got something to say to me, Don't go talking to all these other people because you're really telling on yourself. You got something to say. Don't be having a whole conversation about me outside. You know? No, come talk to me. See me, right? But what you realize that everybody who talk about folk don't really want to see the folk they're talking about. Oh, God. I'm sorry. No, I'm not trying to say we're going to fight. I'm just saying. But, but Jesus said, hearing them, said, wait a minute. How are y'all judging? Oh, I get it. Because you think that somehow the next new move, the messianic move of God is about purity versus salvation. But salvation from the purity. Y'all missed that. You see, the rituals and ceremonies would have made it so that those gathered in Levi's house could not have sat with others because they were viewed as ritualistically unclean. I promise you, the meal was not kosher and they did not go through any cleansing rituals. They just came together to eat. And so the scribes and Pharisees got a problem because there were no purity rituals performed before they just came together. In their mind, Jesus can't be a Messiah if he don't honor their tradition and their rituals. Oh, God. Jesus stands outside of the rituals and the tradition and creates a new space for those who were formerly rejected. I hope you get this. He comes to the place where the religious leaders are judging and puts himself in the number with those who are being judged. Man, hold on. You mean to tell me that in Jesus' teaching and ministry, there's an affinity for the rejects? Absolutely. You just read the New, the New Testament Gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke and see where Jesus shows up. 
people who are viewed as outside of the normal scope of society. He engages women in public. He engages blind people in public. He engages crippled people in public. And he doesn't believe that their affliction is because they're sinners. You need to understand the movement and ministry of Jesus. He goes to the very places that some today Christians would say they wouldn't be caught dead in. That may be why you missed the new move of God. Because you're in the wrong space here in the first place that your relationship with God does not give you some sacred privilege and give you the right to look down at somebody and start determining with your own language who you think is in or out you ought to say you know what I don't got time to try to determine who's in and out I'm just glad I'm in the number I ain't got time to be talking about folk bad mouthing people looking at people funny I'm just glad I'm in the number. Is there anybody in here today who can testify in your spirit? I don't have time to judge you. I don't have time to ostracize you. I'm just glad to be in the number for myself. Is there anybody in here today, beloved, who can testify that I am glad to be in the number? In fact, look at somebody next. Tell them, neighbor, I'm in the number. You in the number. We in the number. And if ain't nobody going to give God praise with you, let's get together right now and give God some praise that we are in the number. Oh, God. Oh, Lord. And so here it is. Being in the number doesn't give me privilege to judge. Being in the number does not give me a right to look at you like something's wrong with you but being in the number does give me a responsibility to bless the Lord at all times and let those praises be in my mouth to give grateful gratitude to God every day that I'm alive and I'm so glad that in the midst of my personal mess and in the midst of my personal struggle and in the midst of my personal turmoil every now and again he reminds me you're still in the number that there's nothing you can do to disqualify me or I can do to disqualify myself from the love of God. Somebody needs to hear that because you grew up thinking you weren't in the number because you ain't know all the scriptures. You ain't go to church every day. You weren't sanctified, saved. But guess what? You were qualified to sit next to Jesus. You were qualified to be in that number. Tell somebody I'm qualified. Yeah, my qualifications are my struggle. My qualifications are my hurt. My qualifications are my pain. Is anybody in here who knows you're qualified? Tell somebody else, I'm qualified. I'm qualified to lift these hands up. I'm qualified to fall on my knees. I'm qualified to give God praise. I'm qualified. I'm qualified to be in the number when when he found you you weren't perfect I, I remember when I felt like God was pulling me closer it was in 1989 and the first thing I started thinking why me I knew the things I had done in my life at that point. 
the things I had done to contribute to other people's downfall. And I, and I thought, why would God want to be with me? Why would I get the invitation? I had stopped going to church and I surely wasn't reading no Bible. I ain't know but maybe a couple of verses. <clears throat> but he wanted me. I had not made a vow to stop anything. But he still wanted me. See, the thing is we miss in this story, Marlene, is that at the dinner weren't former anything. Wait a minute. There were tax collectors, which means what? They were still. There were sinners, which meant what? They were still sinning. But it says this unique thing. But some among their crowd, it said in the story, made a decision to follow Jesus. That means that the decision to follow came in the midst of their continued practice. So, so what does that mean? Well, the first thing it tells you that transformation is never instantaneous. For if they made the decision to follow, it is in the following that the transformation takes place. It is in aligning yourself to the teachings that growth happens. So you can't experience this transformation over the course of your journey with God and then make people believe that you got to start from gate having it together. Stop lying to our kids. If we stop lying, we, we might find a whole lot of them in the number because they will learn because if God walks with me that means God is journeying with me through my growing process and you see what's deep those followers of Jesus who experienced transformation in a journey when they said yes to follow watch this they weren't handed some blueprint they weren't given classes they weren't given a certificate of accomplishment. They simply followed and grew. They followed and they grew. They followed and they evolved. They followed and they changed. It is, I'm going to say it again, it's in your movement that the transformation takes place so that when I start here, can I just be really simplistic? This is for my young folk. If I start here in my journey with God, and here's the thing, I don't set a destination. I just follow. And along the way, unbeknownst to me, growth starts happening. Transformation starts happening. 
evolution starts happening. And then I get to this point here, not finished, just journeying. And here it is, Laverne. I look back and say, whoa, look where he brought me from. I have not arrived, but every now and again, it's good to look back and say, God, I thank you for progress. And I'm not where I was. And I'm not where I'll be. But I'm growing along the way. Thank you for never leaving me or forsaking me in my journey. Thank you for loving me along my journey. Thank you for loving me. For watching me grow. For watching me evolve. For seeing my change. And just, just when I might be tempted to think that I did this work, David whispers in my ear and says, Michael, don't forget that along that journey, goodness and mercy were following me all the days of my life. And I will dwell in the house of the Lord. Not the church, the house of the Lord forever, forever, and ever. I'm in the number. And I ain't ashamed to say that I ain't spiritually fit all the way. But my God, I am still here. And it's by the grace of God. We live, we love, we serve.